Before we get started, you'll notice that in this episode, we refer to Libby, who was a gestational carrier, as the more common term of surrogate. However, there is an important distinction. In traditional surrogacy, the eggs are provided by the surrogate. But for a gestational carrier, the eggs are provided by the biological parents. I was not the type of person who thought, oh, birth is just a blessing. I can just do this for people. That's Libby Miller. Libby did something generous and rare. When I tried to look up information about people voluntarily being surrogates without compensation for friends, I could not find a lot of resources. And I remember at one point wishing, like, I wish I could talk to somebody else in my situation. Today we explore one story of a woman who volunteered to carry her friend's baby. And she just kept repeating, that is so selfless. And she was just, anyways, really emotional. The moments that rocked her. There's a small subset of women who have a very negative reaction to the Lupron. And for me, that negative reaction looked like extreme moodiness, depression. Facing some things she wished she could have avoided. To have such a beautiful experience like this where you just want to share something, but then have to have to have to talk about different nitty gritties of money was just really, really hard for me. And I, I hated that part of it. And the pressure that comes with everyone wanting you to do that one thing. And so we're down to this one last egg. From Bridger Media in Los Angeles, this is Philip Persia Radio, the limited series podcast channel with your host, Layla Jerusalem. We met Kevin and Bree when we were newlyweds in college, and we formed this friend group. Mark and I, Kevin and Bree, and two other couples became this this really close group of friends. We were all newlyweds, and that was the start of the friendship. Just these four couples meeting each other and finishing up our undergrad, and that time really forged this friendship. And then we all moved away to California, one city in Utah, and then we went off to New York. Over like 10 years, we maintained this sort of long distance relationship and we would get together every few years when we could. And it was those getting togethers were always picking up where you left off. Absolutely. Yeah. It very much became that type of friend group where, you know, out of the blue, we could start a text chain or out of the blue, if we hadn't seen each other in several years, we just like we'd seen them yesterday. And when you rank this friendship, you have sisters. I don't. But I imagine there's an intensity when you have a relationship with someone like a sister versus a friend versus a friend group friend. And so, like, how would you sort of define the closeness leading up to that point? You know, that's an interesting question because at the point when we introduced the surrogacy, we actually had not seen this group of friends in a long time. And it being the type of group where you can sort of pick up where you left off, we wouldn't talk every week. Yeah, we hadn't seen them for probably like three years. I think that's really interesting. It's not this type of relationship where we lived in the same city and we were getting together all the time and we were super tight. It it was a different type of relationship and one that almost, it didn't need that constant feeding. It was just sort of stable on its own to be left and to sit 
which I really appreciate about it too, could withstand, you know, that separation. And yeah, how did you become aware that this friend needed help with surrogacy or that was having trouble in the first place? So Kevin and Brie, before surrogacy came on the table, I think they had been trying to have a baby for about five years. And so being close friends, we were just always in the loop as far as what was going on with them, with IVF and retrievals and transfers and being there for them and feeling for them and caring for them and praying for them and and just really trying to show our love and support, which really would just mainly be through conversations, you know, holding space to listen to what they were going through and, and to offer our love and support. And after you left New York for med school, you ended up having two children. So what was happening kind of in your own life as you became more acutely aware, I guess, that this may not happen for her without help? So I had two children 19 months apart. And at no point did I ever consider being a surrogate for anyone or (laughs) even Brie. Like it was not something that crossed my mind. My pregnancies were not blissful. My births were unmedicated and vivid. And I, you know, it was like birth. I was not the type of person who thought, oh, birth is just a blessing. I can just do this for people. (laughs) You know, so like certainly surrogacy just never entered my mind. In the fall of 2017, I had this, this triathlon, this race that I had been working up to and my husband and I had both kind of decided, all right, I'm going to train, I'm going to do this race. And after the race, we're going to decide, are we having another baby or not? It'd been something we'd talked about a lot and never felt the timing was right. 2017, I finished the race in August. And in September, we had you know continued talking about it and talking about it. And we came to the conclusion, especially me, that no, we are not ready for another child in our family. We're not ready to take that step. And as soon as that decision became a solid no, I had a lot of peace with that. And I remember I was actually looking back at my journal. I was thinking about this just one morning in September and thinking about how the right decision for our family was not to have a baby. And there was this line that came to my head that I haven't forgotten, which was something along the lines of, it's the wa- that is a waste of a perfectly good uterus in childbearing years. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I sort of chuckled to myself and then... Out of nowhere, Layla, as if it was like whispered, Kevin and Brie came to my head. And that was the first moment that I thought I could do that. Just sitting, thinking about my family and out of the blue, Kevin and Brie came to my head. And anyone that knows me knows that when I get an impulse to do things that I feel right about, I just, I'm all in. Deem forward. I had this thought about Kevin and Brie and it surprised me. I could be a surrogate for them. I could do this for them. Had you known that they were searching for a surrogate at that point or had you known that they wished that they could have it but maybe couldn't afford it? Like what was the medical situation in which a surrogate would have been the solution anyway? I had no idea if they'd thought about it, wanted it, talked about it. We had had a conversation, I think, the summer before. The time we had seen them before this, when we moved to Omaha in 2016, they came out to visit. And at that visit, 
they opened up and I remember having a, like a really raw conversation about having been in this process at that point for like four years, maybe. So that was the last time we had seen them. And at no point was surrogacy mentioned. They were doing IVF and Brie was doing retrievals and transfers. And that's how they were going about things. So you didn't even know whether or not they had like viable eggs or viable embryos. No, and nothing. Once the idea took hold in my head, kind of, I approached my husband, Mark, and I remember really clearly he was sitting at his desk, he was studying, and I walked in and I said something like, you know, I have this really crazy idea. What do you think if I offered myself to be a a surrogate for Kevin and Brie? And almost without hesitation, without blinking, he was like, I think it's a great idea. He was so supportive, you know, having just had this conversation that, you know, we were not ready to have our own baby. He was just totally on board and he never looked back. He was by my side through all of it. He was supportive of the process. He was just amazing. So had had he known that you'd had that thought, this is a waste of a good uterus? (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Like like what a waste, waste of a perfectly good uterus. Yeah. No. So now Mark's on board. You're probably thinking of pros and cons, more pros than cons. You're thinking of how you're going to maybe tell the girls how it might work. And so walk us through that process and up to the point where you actually tell your friends. There were a few things that for me were signposts that this was right. This was the right path to be pursuing. And one of those signposts happened as I tried to tell Kevin and Brie about this idea. It was late September and I called Brie to talk and she's like, oh, hey, Libby, listen, we're literally in the middle of moving right this moment. We're moving to a new apartment. Can I call you back? And I was like, sure. I don't want to like spring this on them in the middle of their move. (laughs) So the next week I tried them again and I knew that I had to randomly fly out to Utah and I would be there for a few days just by myself without the kids and Mark. I was like, I'll call him when I'm in Utah. I'll have peace and quiet. We can talk. So I get to Utah and I call her again. Now this is the very end of September now. And she's like, Libby, I'm just boarding a plane right now. I can't talk. We're flying to Utah. What? Can I see you? And (laughs) she was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was leaving Utah. This was a Friday night, and I was leaving Utah Saturday the next day. And so we overlapped for maybe 24 hours. <laughs> I went to Park City, and and we caught up. So the first like sign to me was this fortuitous meeting that they live in California, I live in Nebraska, and here we were in Utah at the same time for less than 24 hours. Wow. So we meet up, and we, we start catching up, and they asked how we were doing. And then I asked how they were doing. Towards the end of our conversation, they opened up that Brie had just done a retrieval, maybe a few weeks before, a couple weeks before, and had just gotten, I think, eight viable eggs out of it. And that they had just found out a few days before, something like that, that she'd had a failed transfer. Mm. For me, that was looking back, like sort of the second signpost the fact that she had just had her second egg retrieval and just had gotten like such a great batch of egg 
really kind of set the process up also. After they got finished. Set the process for that conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they finished telling me how everything had gone. And I asked, just was like, so have you guys ever thought about using a surrogate? And they said, well, we have, but it's just so expensive. If you're going through an agency, it's like $90,000 to $120,000. And Brie, I remember her saying, she's like, and, you know, all of my friends are in childbearing age. Like, I don't have anyone that I could ask, really. And so they were like, you know, maybe later when we could afford to do that. But, you know, right now, that's not where we're at. And I remember feeling so nervous and being like, all right, here we go. I was like, you know, well, Mark and I talked about it and I like, I would be happy to be a surrogate for you guys. And um, I just remember (laughs) Brie covering her face and like bursting into tears and Kevin looking at me literally like a deer in the headlights. (laughs) And just sort of this stunned moment where it was just, we're not expecting it. And so then I think for another hour, we talked maybe about logistics and like, how would this happen? How would this work? And all of this. And she burst into tears. And then was it just like 20 minutes of thank yous? And I can't believe you want to do this. And oh my gosh. And yeah, I wrote down what Bree said and I was just reading it and she just kept repeating that is so selfless. And she was just, anyways, really emotional. Yeah. Those are the things that I remember. And I'm sure that, you know, they said thank you. And, you know, but it was just sort of, I think, just so shocking. It was like, and then Kevin was just like a deer in the headlights. And then we laughed later because he made a comment, something like, well, now we're really going to be friends forever. So something like (laughs) we're stuck together if we do this or something like that. And I left and flew back home and they wanted to take a little bit of time to sort of consider this and... Ultimately, we all decided, you know, they decided that it would be the right thing for their family to go ahead and try this. We just moved ahead. Kevin and Brie were established with an IVF clinic where they were living in California. I got in touch with them and it was just starting blood tests, starting birth control pills, starting getting prepped, you know, getting my, I had my IUD out like the next week. Would you need to do all those things where you were living or are living? Yeah. So the way it worked was I was able to do certain blood tests out here in Omaha. They prescribed me all the IVF medications and I started them out here. But the actual transfer that happened out in California at their clinic so that we didn't have to worry about transferring the eggs through the mail because they're so precious. And so the plan was that because it takes a few months to get your body ready. And I didn't know any of this. I had never delved into the world of IVF and what that process is because I had not needed to. I was probably the most clueless person to ever go through IVF because I feel like the moms that do IVF, they are just so incredibly involved and they know what they're doing. They know the research and they know, they just like, they are amazing. And that that was not me. I just showed up. I was like, okay, what next? Okay. Uh huh. (laughs) Yep. I'll do that. Do this. Put that where? Okay. And then being a nurse, you knew all the terms, of course, but not necessarily the process. 
I knew the process would involve shots and this and that. I didn't look into like, what medication will I be taking? What are the side effects? That could have been very helpful. And maybe we'll, we can get to that. So while my body, while they were prepping me and all of this, you know, Bree decided to, she continued to do some transfers of her own while they were getting me ready. After her most recent egg retrieval, she maybe had eight embryos. And by the time I was already like ready to go, they had two embryos left. About the process of getting ready, you said you'd taken your IUD out. You had started doing all the shots. Did you do them on yourself? The small everyday shots, Lupron, those were little ones and I could give those to myself. After monitoring my blood levels, they wanted my estrogen to be higher and they wanted me to get an estrogen injection. I think I did this every week and that was a a big needle. I think I managed giving it to myself once and the rest of the time I was like, Mark, it's like just a dart, just do it. Just, I can't, it was just too big to do it myself. And then they were good. And then two viable eggs all on you. Right. No pressure. But I will, I do want to say something here about the Lupron. This is where a little bit of research could have been useful. Being on Lupron was super hard. For whatever reason, there's a really, there's a small subset of women who have a very negative reaction to the Lupron. And for me, that negative reaction looked like extreme moodiness, depression, like emotionally, the effects of Lupron on me were really, really difficult. And I have a history of dealing with depression. And actually, at the time I decided to be a surrogate, I was taking an antidepressant. And I decided that I wanted to be off the antidepressant while conceiving and being pregnant for as long as possible, um, just to not have that medication in my system while I'm trying to grow this little baby for them. So I had gone off of my antidepressant and I was actually feeling fine, but almost immediately upon starting the Lupron, <laughs> I, it was, I have never experienced anything like it. So I'm going through that and then we have our first transfer. So Lupron is only taken in preparation for? Yes. During yes. that time... And I, I'm just going to assume that, you know, when you say that almost immediately when you took Lupron, got off the antidepressant, you just felt low. Like you just get into like depths yeah. of... Yes. Yes. I affectionately call it the dark days of Lupron. <laughs> That's how I remember it. Yeah. We did our first transfer. So you fly by yourself to California? Actually, their IVF clinic required Mark and I to fly out to California before we did the transfer to do a psychological evaluation. I think basically for legal purposes, but also to like make sure that I wasn't going to try and steal their baby. The transfer was going to be, I think, about six weeks later. The girls ended up coming with me out to California. The beautiful thing about the kids being there was that it provided us an opportunity for them to make the experience more real. My kids at the time this all started were four and five. And when it all ended, they were five and six. Before we flew out to California, I think we used the analogy of a mama bird sitting on an egg. And we explained to them that Kevin and Brie had an egg and they were going to give it to me. And I was just going to sit on it and grow it for them. And you know what? They totally got it. People always ask, you know, was it so hard for your kids to understand? But it, it wasn't. It was not hard for them to understand. It was not hard for them to understand this wasn't their baby. It wasn't their brother. It wasn't their sister. And then I think it was like this little blessing that we were. I was able to be there with the girls because we were able to say, this is Kevin and Bree's house. 
where do you think they should put the crib? That process, I think, really was positive for them. Did initially worry that it would be a positive experience for them. You know, being so little, I didn't want them to have this emotional trauma from their pregnant mom and then thinking they get to have this baby in their lives that wasn't. But that wasn't the case at all. Wow. Who came up with the idea of sitting on the egg and the birds and... I did. I think I was just trying to put it in terms that, you know, they could visually connect with. And I think that that little idea just made sense to them. So for the transfer, we all went together and we were all in the room together. You know, I was sitting in the stirrups and they were kind of behind me and it's chairs by my shoulders. And it's a very, very quick procedure. They come in and do the transfer and it's done. And then you're like, okay. That was it. Did they transfer both viable embryos or just one? No, they just did the one. When an egg is transferred into your body, are you just like tempted to just like hang out upside down for like a couple of months? I'm just imagining what that moment must be like. And it just does you like you have this precious, precious cargo. Cargo. They were like, you can just, it's normal activity. Just go about your day or whatever. And so we did. I flew back home with the girls and a few weeks later, you know, started obsessively checking, taking pregnancy tests. And to my total shock, I I did not get pregnant. I was just, I felt so good about everything. I felt like this was meant to be, I'm going to have this baby for them. I know I am. And it did not work out. And it was just so mind-blowing to think about, I just got inseminated in front of my two friends and like a group of people. You know, the assumption can't be that, let's say, because you've had two children of your own, that somehow you're necessarily a good candidate, right? So how do they assess whether your body was even... And it just goes back to the larger question of surrogacy. Do we just assume that people can carry babies because they have in the past is a sort of a huge mark because the surrogate I spoke with has also had children of her own. And so is that sort of like the number one check mark? I think a lot of agencies that do this commercially, I think, and I'm sure there are exceptions too, but I think that like in general, they want to know that you can conceive. And if you have been able to conceive on your own before, there's a better chance that you can, you at least, they at least know to some extent your body can accept and hold a pregnancy and all of that. Whereas if you have never done that, just like any woman who has struggles with infertility, you have no idea. Do they ask about history with miscarriages as well? Yeah, I did have to do a physical and I had to do many blood tests and all of this stuff that they, to the best of their ability, judged me to be, I guess, a a viable candidate. My conversation with Libby continues after the break. Maybe there's like a little bit of fear of getting too excited because they have been, their hearts have been broken so many times. Preconceived is brought to you by Meta Natura. If you've ever taken medication for pain, you know that there can be a range of side effects. Meta Natura gives millions relief without the side effects of conventional medicines. When I got seriously injured a few years ago, one over-the-counter muscle pain product gave me instant relief. Tea Relief, made from arnica, plant-based pain relievers, and a cream of organic oils and organic shea butter, contains no dyes or perfumes. Meta Natura products like Tea Relief, Well Mind, 
Clear Life, and Reboost can be purchased on Amazon, Whole Foods, or Sprouts. Use code MIRACLE to receive 25% off your order on metanatura.com. Hi, listeners. Before we get back to the rest of this episode, we remind you that every share, rate, and review makes a difference. It keeps us connected to you and tells us what stories to bring you next. Share, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Okay, you were in the stirrups, the baby was implanted, your friends are there, you're in this office, you fly back home, obsessively check, and you're not pregnant. What was that like, that moment? I think I just, I couldn't believe it. Up until that point, I had felt so sure. You know, when you feel sure about something, I guess you sort of, in your mind, you have a image of how it will all play out and how it all played out was I was going to get pregnant the very first time and, you know, have this baby. It didn't. And so now we're, we're down to this one last egg and I have to go back on Lupron. (laughs) I think that was the hardest part, knowing that I had to go back on Lupron. We went through that whole process again. And this time our transfer date was set for April 6th. I flew out to California this time alone by myself and we did the transfer. And it's really interesting because one of the things, again, that is just so beautiful about this, these little details that maybe I just see, but April 6th, that is the Easter season. And Felix's due date was December 25th. And I'm just, you know, I'm Christian. And I'm just like, that's so symbolic of this just, this beautiful little life. I don't know. There's just so much there. And he's such a special little kid. But so you go a second time. And this time, like, what's the vibe in the office? Like, is everyone still like, yeah? Or what's <laughs> always like, yeah? What's, what's yeah, the vibe second you know, time around? I was actually still feeling really good. I was just like, this is happening. So it has to be this. I think Kevin and Brie were probably a little more like, oh my gosh, because IVF is expensive. It is, and all of that. And we can get to that right after. But yeah, so we had the last transfer. And as soon as I was able, I started taking pregnancy tests. And I remember the day I got my first tiny little line, like just so you could barely see it. And I was like, yes. And we called Kevin and Brie, we FaceTimed them. And I was like, I'm pregnant, (laughs) you know, tears, you know what? I actually don't remember tears. I I remember excitement, elation. I think throughout the whole process, I, you know, you asked me to think about what was the experience like, and the first word that came to my head was surreal. And I think that's, I would imagine that's true for all parties involved, sort of this out of body experience. And I think for Kevin and Bree too, you know, like they've been waiting for those words for five years, right? Like how many months right. Right. could have led to that moment and didn't, and now they got to hear it. Yeah. I think even at that point though, for parents who go through this IVF process again and again and again, maybe there's like a little bit of a fear of getting too excited because they have been, their hearts have been broken so many times and their hopes have been let down so many times. So yeah, I think almost until that little baby is in the arms of their parents, you know, there's just this little holding of your breath, wanting so badly for it to work out. 
So you're pregnant. I'm pregnant now. Yes. The pregnancy was textbook. It was a healthy pregnancy. Compared to your others? Compared to the others, it was more difficult. I was also five years older than the last time I had had a baby. So I attribute most of it to that. And also it was a boy. I'd never carried a boy. And he he ended up being bigger, not much bigger, but slightly bigger than my girls. I had a little bit of morning sickness, a little more. I don't normally have that. So otherwise, I mean, it was just a very healthy pregnancy. I will say, so Kevin and Brie were great enough when I told them that, you know, I wanted to be off of antidepressants for their pregnancy. We talked about having the option of therapy available for me as something that they would support. And so they did pay for that, which was so wonderful of them. And I did during those dark days of Lupron, I did see a therapist, which was so helpful. But then, you know, later in the pregnancy, I was experiencing some depression again. And so after talking to my midwives and everything, we I ended up starting an antidepressant again in the third trimester. And that actually ended up being a really good thing for me. And, you know, a happy, happy carrier, happy mom that also affects the baby. You, you were implanted on April 6th. The due date was still December mm-hmm. 25th. You're going through all this third trimester, the fall. I mean, life just continued on, you know, for us and for Kevin and Bree. And and you're working, you're working at this point? Mm-hmm. I was working part-time as a nurse. We That summer, we got together for the gender ultrasound. And then they had a big gender reveal party. We all went up and it was really beautiful because so many of their friends and family were able to be there and my family was able to be there and I was just sure it was going to be a girl and lo and behold little baby boy and it was just a really fun time and that was the first time in several years that our whole friend group those four couples we were all there for that event and so it was sort of like this full circle really wonderful moment how did you plan for the due date? Did you, where were you going to have this baby? Yeah. And, and you were in touch with her clinic. At what point does the IVF clinic pass it on to the OB? As soon as you pass, I think the six week mark and you have your first eight week appointment. Like I had that appointment and I chose to go with midwives. I did my other two girls with midwives and they were really wonderful and supportive and everything. And Kevin and Bree were okay with that. They came out for the first appointment here in Omaha so that they could talk with the providers, ask all the questions that they had, and sort of help them see the hospital, see the practice, and be involved in all the excitement of that first little baby appointment. And so they were there for the first one, and then they flew out to you when you're ready to give birth? Or did you fly out to them? We decided that really, for me, it would have been pretty difficult to fly out to California for the birth for so many reasons. My kids were in school at the time and you're not really supposed to fly when you're like 38 weeks pregnant. So I would have had to go out further ahead of time and figuring out childcare for my kids and where would they have been and where would Mark have been because he would not have been able to be out with me and all of that. We decided that it'd be easier for just them to come to us. So my first daughter was born on her due date, and then my second daughter was born within just a couple hours of her due date. So I was feeling like if I had this baby, just naturally, I was pretty sure that he would come on the 24th or 25th. And that complicated things for me because we don't have family out here in Omaha, 
and Kevin and Brie were going to be staying with us before Felix was born at our house. So the idea of like adding like another family member to the mix at our home didn't really seem like a great idea, but it also really stressed me out to think about going into labor in the middle of the night on the 24th and just being like, Merry Christmas, kids, Santa will find you. You got to go to their house now because mom's having a baby. It was where it's like I had total confidence in my five and six year old being able to understand (laughs) surrogacy, but I had no confidence that ruining Christmas would like be something they forgot anytime (laughs) soon, you know, with mom and dad and Kevin and Brie being gone. And they're just like, (laughs) interrupting somebody's Christmas. I just, the whole idea of it stressed me out so much. I didn't think that I'd be able to really give the birth all of the focus and attention that I would want to give it if I was worrying about social and cultural stressors going on. So we decided they were okay with me being induced. So my induction date was December 21st. And again, I think the midwives all thought, the way things were looking, that I'd be induced, I'd have this baby right away, it'd be great. So I was induced early in the morning on the 21st, and Felix didn't come actually until the 22nd, like two or three in the morning. That day was a really special day. It was just Kevin and Bree and Mark and I in the delivery room, just kind of hanging out. We were able to just talk about how we'd gotten there. We were able to just spend time together. We were able to have some really special moments together. So they flew out a few days before. And then they hung out and stayed with you guys. So that when you were ready to be induced, you all did it together? Yeah, they were there. And before baby was born, we had very specific conversations about, okay, when baby is born, who has the baby? Where's the baby going? Who's doing this and who's doing that? And I think that was really important. And so what we decided upon together, Bree would, she would deliver Felix. The midwives were okay with her catching Felix. Kevin was instructed that he had to stay at my shoulders and at no time (laughs) venture any further, which he was totally fine with. Brie caught baby and then they placed baby on me while they made sure I was okay. They made sure Felix was okay. Deliver the placenta and all that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then Kevin cut the cord at a distance. <laughs> right, right. And then Kevin and Brie went with baby over to, you know, the little warming table where they just checked them all out. And they, from there on, they kind of just stayed with baby and then they did skin to skin and all of that. And I did get an epidural because my other two births were really hard and there was a lot of screaming. And I was like, Kevin and Brie don't need to see that. Like, I don't really want to share that with anyone. We're good. I've always wanted to try the epidural. We'll do the epidural. And how was it? It was good. But, you know, it was actually, I think my body did not want to deliver that baby before it was ready to. It wasn't my smoothest birth, I guess, in terms of the baby actually like coming and again with like the placenta and not coming out and all of that. It wasn't the worst birth, but it wasn't the best, but I was medicated. So that helped. And yeah, I was sad when it was over. <laughs> so I heard when you, yeah, when you are on it, when you ha- use an epidural, uh, you are afterward, like it's harder on your body, right? One of the really hard things about being induced and having the epidural was all the fluid. By the time Felix was born, I was so filled with fluid because you're on an IV all day long. And then with the epidural, you're on an IV. And I was so swollen and puffy. I I really hated the feeling of that. 
so Mark was in the room as well. And what was his reaction to everything? We haven't heard much about Mark. Marky Mark. He was just my rock. As in my other pregnancies, he was did not leave my side. I had his hand the whole time. He was just whispering words of encouragement. And when that baby was born, he was just by my side, making sure I was okay. And and then, of course, we got to just meet this beautiful little baby boy, Felix. And who was anyone crying at that moment? Honestly, I was so out of it, Layla. I, especially after having to have my, like the placenta removed and all that. I don't know, but there are some pictures of, <laughs> there's some pictures I've seen of Kevin and Brie afterwards where they're like very emotional, you know, obviously. And they were amazing. They just, gosh, that little baby boy spent so much time on skin to skin with his mom and dad. And Aww. they just jumped right in there. And I think as surreal as it is to carry someone else's baby man to have your baby just like here here you go like there are so many emotions and surrogacy is such a complex thing to go through how long do you spend time together in your home and then your body too like because you're you start lactating right like how what is that like what, what's that experience like yeah so I approached them and I did say if they were comfortable with it, I would love to be able to give Felix some colostrum. And colostrum you can't really pump and feed. It's just so thick. And so the really the only option was for me to breastfeed him. And they were comfortable with that. So after Felix was born, I did feed him. And then the next morning I fed him one more time. And then that was it. We ended up spending one extra day in the hospital just because they wanted to be sure everything was okay with me, with the placenta and everything, make sure there was no retention. So I was in one room and Kevin and Brie and Felix were in a room right next to me at the hospital. And then, yeah, how about the lactation? Did you, did it hurt? Yeah, you know, I was kind of afraid of that from stories I'd heard, but honestly, I kept cold cabbage leaves on me and I kept myself medicated with Tylenol and it, it went away and it was it was not terrible. Tell me about the aftermath. We go home. Our really close friends from this friend group in college, their parents live here as well. And so one of the things I was worried about, I really wanted Kevin and Bree to be able to like have their own special time with their baby with the kids at our house and everything and them, you know, staying in our basement that the kids maybe would be interrupting them or and I didn't know what state I would be in. So we had agreed that after Felix was born, they'd go stay with our friend's parents for the two days that they were here before they flew home. And looking back, I actually, knowing how things played out, I kind of wish they would have come back to and been with us. But they did come over and visit with Felix a few times before they went home. And those were just really special moments. And the girls came to the hospital to meet Felix. And that was just so sweet. And they were so sweet with him. And, you know, they were able to understand this is Felix. And he looks exactly like his mama, his real mama. Like, bring this little idea of it's Kevin and Bree's egg back to it. And so, yeah, it was just really sweet to be able to be together and have that bit of time. And then off they went and they flew home and it was like the easiest recovery I've ever had. I think the whole not breastfeeding and not having a newborn, I it was definitely my easiest, <laughs> quickest recovery. Yeah, sleeping. Right. Not to say that like I immediately just like magically lost weight and was like all this and that again, but it was easier to recover. 
Yeah. And then did you, did you gain weight? Yeah, I did. So he was born in December. It was the middle of winter and all of this. So, you know, I sort of just let myself have space to, I'd go through periods where I'm like, all right, that's it. I'm going to lose it all. And then I'd be like, meh, I'm good. The most common question I got was, is it going to be hard for you to give the baby up? That was always what people asked me. I just sort of look at them like, this is not my baby, first of all. (laughs) First of all, this is not my baby. Like, no part of this is my baby. Second of all, that's a psychotic. Yeah. Actually, yeah, second of all. Anyways, no, I mean, like, I I could understand. They were like, basically, they were like, are you going to be emotionally connected to this baby? Will it be hard for you? Blah, blah, blah. But second of all, I was like, and I do not want a baby. I do not. There was a reason Mark and I decided not to have a baby right now. Yeah. Part of that is like, I do not want a baby. I do not want to be up in the middle of the night. Like I, you know, Mark was really, really busy with work and I had these two little girls and I was working part time and I was like, we do not need one more thing in our life right now. That's goes beyond these nine months. So, so it was not hard. And, um, The other really strange thing about being a surrogate was you do not have an emotional connection with the baby. It was a night and day difference. With my babies, every movement, every hiccup, every this, every that, I was just like, this is my baby, you know, just, oh my gosh, that's a little elbow or a foot. And this, I'm like, Hey kid, I'm going to take a picture of my belly for your mom and dad and they're going to love to see this. You know what I mean? Like it was just a totally, totally different experience. And I, even at some point I was like, I hope I'm not like emotionally scarring Felix because we're not emotionally connected, but I like, I still love you. You're like, like a nephew to me, but you know, there really was a difference between carrying, you know, your own child and someone else's child, which I think was a, a beautiful blessing because I would not want to feel about Felix the way I felt when I was carrying my own kids, because yes, that would be hard to give up a baby that you felt connected to in that way. Sounds like the difference was profound in that moment between your child and the experience of having your own child and someone else else's child. But I think the fact that people ask that question brings up something very interesting that maybe a lot of people assume about pregnancy is that just the process of pregnancy somehow in and of itself is enough to create a bond, a connection, a deep loving and longing for this child when you and your experience you've demonstrated that a that's not the case and you know that connection really comes from something different and something much deeper it also makes me think of all the people who do go through a pregnancy and do have children even maybe of their own and don't actually maybe can't care about this child in that way or give birth to this child and abandon it and so i think it's important for people to understand that the pregnancy in and of itself is not sufficient to create the bonds. The bonds are much different than the experience of carrying this child. Right. And that's even given the fact that I was emotionally connected to the birth parents, you know what I mean? To the biological parents, even with all of that going for us and me having a personal reason to care about the health and well-being of this baby and all of that, it was just different. Again, I always say I felt like I was babysitting babysitting a baby that I I definitely cared a lot about. It was overall a positive experience with some lows. Are there parts about it that 
are hard for you to talk about even now in retrospect. I do remember like having not known that you were doing this until we had that conversation. So you weren't very public about it while it was happening. Tell me about the experience of keeping it to yourself, which totally makes sense. Wanting to explain to everybody what's happening and go through this conversation with we just had with every single person, but then also looking back and things maybe you would have done differently or... The reason that I was not public about it was honestly because it wasn't about me. Kevin and Brie are not really public people. They're even on their own Instagrams. They were not like very public about all of this happening and all of that. So it was really out of respect to Kevin and Brie and and to let this be their story and to let them be the ones to decide how and when and what they shared. And I was totally fine with that. Like that was not a problem for me at all. Once Felix was born, I did, I did that one Instagram post just because it was such a beautiful experience. And I thought, you know, maybe someone will see this and it will plant a little seed in their head that like, oh, maybe I could do this. And I actually did get a couple people reach out to me from my Instagram post and say, hey, you thought about this or something like that. So the privateness was just really on social media was really out of respect to Kevin and Brie and letting this be totally their thing here where I live, it was sort of a need to know basis. People that I knew I would be seeing after the birth of the baby, I I was sure to let them know that I was a surrogate so that they weren't wondering if there was some tragic reason that I wasn't with a baby. And strangers who commented on my belly bump and stuff, I was usually just like, oh yeah, yeah, it's a boy. You know, I didn't like really need to get into everything. If if they were happened to be exceptionally inquisitive, it might come out. And people were always so... Like anyone that heard the story, it just brought happiness to any, anyone that heard the story. And, and that was, man, people's humanity and the way they just share in people's emotions when it comes to a little baby. It was really beautiful. So yeah, that's why I didn't really share a lot. I have no regrets about the pregnancy. I always say I would do it over again, but I wouldn't do it again. Like I really feel like this was my experience with surrogacy. It was just meant to be with Kevin and Bree and Felix. I'm not a serial surrogate. I'm not looking to do that. The only other thing really about the whole process that was hard was talking about the financials. If there was a way that I could do it over and not ever have to deal with that part of it with Kevin and Bree, hands down, I would do it because even with close friends talking about money and talking about, well, are you paying for this or that or whatever, you know, oh man, to have such a beautiful experience like this, where you just want to share something, but then have to have to have to talk about different nitty gritties of money. It was just really, really hard for me. And I, I hated that part of it. So looking back, I can see where a third party agency would be really helpful, where it would have been so much easier to have someone who's a go-between who sort of knew the right questions to ask, the right things to prepare people for. You know, my husband is a resident. We're not in like a, a financial place where I could just sort of take on a lot of extra costs. The details of like, okay, well, I need to buy prenatals or I'm actually like, my old pregnancy clothes don't fit me or like. Yeah, I imagine I I definitely struggle with that as well. So how did you deal with it? Like, I know sometimes money can, it can kind of plant some negative things in friendships. Yeah, no, Kevin and Brie were really, really wonderful. 
there was never any question of Mark and I paying for part of it, but I think it was like the working out of where the costs were coming through and having to create a Google sheet of this was my cost, here's the expense. And so, yeah, we, that's kind of how we dealt with it. We had this Google sheet where I would, you know, write down the expenses, you know, things, different things that we needed to end up paying for, you know, and we had to buy flights or figure that out and, and they would reimburse us. And that's how we worked it out. And then did they want to have that conversation up front? How, you know, they probably said, you know, we'll take care of everything and all of that. Yeah. Yeah, they did. I think we were just both not totally prepared, Leela. I, th- I think had we maybe done a lot more like reading about specifically like how our financials handled in surrogacy, like we could have been maybe more intentional about when. So the hard thing was when I tried to look up information about people voluntarily being surrogates without compensation for friends, I could not find a lot of resources on that. And I remember at one point wishing like, I wish I could talk to somebody else in my situation, but I really had a hard time finding resources like that. You know, most of these surrogacy groups, a lot of them on Facebook and things like that, they are in a really different position. Their surrogates going through agencies. And I think that changes the dynamic a lot. As you're saying that, I thought, oh, this could be an amazing nonprofit. Oh my gosh, I have thought that so many times. Like a nonprofit who volunteers to be the third party for people that are going to, because there were so many logistics. There were so many logistics and their IVF clinic was really great and handled a lot of that. Even me doing this voluntarily, like the cost to Kevin and Brie, like it is still like an astronomical cost to have a baby. And and they were so wonderful and they did cover everything. And they hired a cleaner to come from my, to my house while I was pregnant, which was amazing of them. And after we, they surprised us and they're like, we want to take you guys on a trip as a thank you. And so we decided that we would do it when they were a little more adjusted to having a baby and I had my body had recovered a little. And so in March, they flew us all and we went to Hawaii for a week together. And it was amazing. It was, it was so amazing to have this opportunity to see this baby in the flesh, not as like this little newborn, but as this vibrant, bright little like three month old. And that was so amazing and so generous and of them. And my point is that even if you have someone that you're super close with and you love them, dealing with the financial side of figuring out the surrogacy was, it was hard. I think the reason that was hard for me was because I imagine that this surrogacy experience would just be like this blissful, perfect, like we're doing this together and there's not going to be a care in the world. We're just growing a baby for your family. And so then to have sort of this hard stuff enter in that blissful bubble that I had created was really hard for me. And I did really have to process it and it took me a while to deal with. But I think I've got, I was able to get to this place where I was able to let go of this idea of perfection without any conflict. You know what I mean? And and conflict is even a strong word. There really wasn't any conflict. It was just maybe awkwardness. Of your relationship now, what was the effect on your friendship? I mean, we were really close before. We, we, you know, we had this friendship before where we were able to be apart, but still consider them some of our closest friends. And I think that just continues we really communicate in the way that we did before, which is just texting each other every once in a while, like, Hey, how are things going? And, you know, especially now almost a year and a half out, we're back to normal life and and all of this. And so 
I catch up on Instagram and see their pictures of Felix and all of that. And once in a while, they'll Kevin or will send me a text or with a video or something. Or once in a while, I'll reach out and be like, "Hey, send me a picture of that baby. How are you guys?" So going through this, was there a moment where you thought things can turn out badly when you, you think? If this, if we don't fix this part of it, or if I don't figure this out, then it'll have these negative consequences. And it sounds like maybe the finances was a bit in that bucket. I think that there was one moment in the very beginning where this one particular conversation that didn't really go so well, and I was worried that it would affect things. But again, it didn't. I think the really important thing that I've learned from this is you can have hard times with the people you love and not everything will be perfect and that's okay. And really we came together to help them bring a baby to this world. And, you know, and that is what we did when I was able to just step back and look at the bigger picture and the goal and kind of just decide to let go of the minutia and the the details where I could. It was really freeing and really positive to be able to do that. But I did have to grapple with it. I did have to, it took me a while to just sort of be at peace with there being hard parts of the process. That's also really good advice for people who are considering this. I'd love to have you wrap up with just thinking about people who might be on the fence. So what would you tell people who are considering this? And then what kind of mindset should a person have going into this? If you have the desire to do it and you have the support of you know, your family, first and foremost, like I would never, if Mark had said been a hard no, this would not have happened. Like I, I don't think I that it just wouldn't have happened. I needed to have him equally on board. But I would say do it. It it will not be perfect and it might be messy at times, but if you are able to do it and help a family bring this a baby, uh, you know, like a gift that you're able to just naturally be blessed with, like if you're able to share that with someone else, it was such a beautiful experience and I kind of the word I use is almost sacred sometimes just to be able to share in that way with someone and to do that for someone, do it. But, you know, with that little piece of advice that really figure out ahead of time, all the logistics, talk about that, talk ahead of time about all the awkward little financials that you can think about, talk about who's going to be in the room for delivery, who's going to catch the baby, where's baby going to go, you know, all these things that you wouldn't normally have to talk about, make sure you talk about them, give each other space, Realize that it's an incredibly emotional thing for all parties involved. Always just assume everyone's trying to do the best that they know how, you know, and think that will get you far. And as far as mindset, you know, my observation of you is that you wanted and sought very little credit for having done this. And so I imagine somebody who wants to be the hero of the situation, it's probably not a good fit. Yeah, I very much felt, you know, this was not about me. I didn't want it to be about me. It was about them and their beautiful baby and their family and all of that. A note about this episode. Generally, women are advised to have completed their own families before becoming surrogates or gestational carriers in case there are complications that cause permanent physical injury that might prevent a future pregnancy. When this issue came up, Libby had felt confident, given her history, that this would be another healthy pregnancy and that it wouldn't affect their future plans. Baby Felix was born in December 2018, 
Over a year later, she and Mark decided to expand their family. Libby is due with her third child, a boy, in March of 2021. I'd like to thank Libby, Heidi, Kate, and Laura for sharing their beautiful stories and what at moments were deeply painful experiences for them. I am grateful for their courage, their vulnerability, and their humanity. Pay the series forward by sharing their stories with those who need to hear them most. Preconceived, Stories of IVF and Surrogacy is developed and executive produced by Layla Jerusalem for Bridger Media in Los Angeles. The series is produced and mixed by Jason Sheasley. We'd like to thank Stephen Winston for his branding expertise and for naming our show, Nan Ray for designing our cover art, and John Raymond Fisher for lending his voiceover talent.